Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from, your from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the word of the Lord. Greet each other as you sit in middle school. Morning. Y'all doing all right? Yeah. Thanks for coming to church. Thanks, Kayla. Good to see you. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, this morning, I have a, a very simple invitation uh, for every single piece, per, per, piece in. I, I can't get my words straight. Every single person in this room. I always mess up the first sentence of every sermon. It's hilarious. Um, I have an extremely simple invitation for every person in this room. Uh, me included, everyone in here. Uh, I want to put a door before you, and I just want to encourage you to walk through. Um, it's an invitation into joy. Into joy. Uh, Oxford defines joy as a great feeling of pleasure or delight, gladness, exaltation, jubilation, deep satisfaction. That seems simple enough. Uh, who doesn't want that in your life? If I were to say, raise your hand if you want Joy. I think most people would be like, yeah, I want joy. I would like joy in my life. Now, if I said, raise your hand if you have joy. You walk in joy every day. People would describe you as a joyful person. I would guess it might be substantially fewer people. So out the gate, joy is not as simple as we think it is. Most people would say they want it. And most people would say, I don't have it. As much as we want uh, to walk through the door of joy, we have a complicated relationship with joy, don't we? It's been obscured, hasn't it? Uh, just like the word on the screen. For many of us, uh, there's something in between us and joy. Something in between you and joyful living. Some invisible barrier, in this case a flower. Um, some obstruction that we can't quite identify. What is it? Is it relational conflict? Is it your job? Just not enough free time? All those are factors. I'm a parent of young kids. Look, I got obstacles to like doing what I want to do in my life. You know what I'm saying? What is it for you that is the obstacle between you and joy? 
all of us at one point could probably uh, point to things that are in between us and joy. Uh, and some of us, I think, have an attitude towards joy um, as like a lived experience. I think our attitude towards joy as a lived experience is kind of like that ship sailed, <laughs> you know? Like I tried when I was younger. Maybe other people have joy in their life, like according to their social media feed, they got lots of joy. Uh, but it's always out of reach for me. We have complicated relationships with joy, don't we? For children, however, the door to joy seems flung open, doesn't it? Kids can seemingly enter into joy at the drop of a hat, right? They don't seem to have the complicated baggage that adults have when it comes to joy. It's just more simple to kids, isn't it? We kind of muck it up with complications. Children seem to be able to take the light in anything in the, at the drop of a hat. And of course, most theologians have speculated for millennia over what Jesus meant when he said, hey, you got to become like one of those to enter the kingdom. You ever heard that one? Jesus said, you got to become like a kid if you're going to get in the kingdom. Now, what we know he didn't mean is you need to revert to being childish. Childish and childlike are two different things. This week, my son opened the door to let the cat out, and my three-year-old wanted to open the door to let the cat out. And she screamed like a demon banshee and, and lunged at him. Like we were fearing for his life in that moment. <laughs> Clearly, Jesus doesn't mean be childish. But there's something about a kid that he's trying to point out to us. And I wonder if it's not the ease at which they enter into joy. Like, all I have to do is cross my eyes at my three-year-old, and she squeals with the same three-year-old, the, the, the demon banshee. When she squeals with delight. If I cross my eyes at her, laughter, joy, and delight. It's just simpler for kids, isn't it? And the older we get, the more difficulties we have with joy. Now, I'd imagine some of us have very complicated relationships with joy in this room. The longer you live, the more reasons you have as to why you cannot be a joyful person. Maybe we're too reasonable, you know, too practical, too busy. I'm too important to have joy. Um, suckers smile. I'm going somewhere with my life, you know. We don't have time for joy these days. Our and of course, um, our challenges with joy are, are not unwarranted, are they? Uh, I mean, you live a little, you know, you ride this space rock around this burning ball of fire a couple times. And joy can seem to be more and more an unrealistic expectation for life, right? And anyone? Like as you age, you begin to understand humanity and life on a bit of a deeper level, at least so we think. And what once seemed like a bright flame of promise and hope and potential life, you know, <laughs> gets snuffed out by experience and monotony and unmet expectations, and woundedness, and betrayals. And you find, turns out, people are not as kind as you thought. And you find, man, people will actually take advantage. They'll cheat you. People will hurt you on purpose. <laughs> How many times do you have to be betrayed by a friend, or fired by a boss, or rejected by a lover before the flame of joy begins to wane and want in your life? It gets plowed under, doesn't it? It becomes obstructed. It's almost as if the gears of life themselves inevitably crush any expectations we have for joy as a lived experience. Can anyone relate to this? This kind of slow death by a thousand lost joys? This kind of slow death by a thousand expectations gone unmet 
are crushed, and joy seems less and less realistic. And so when we experience that, we adjust, don't we? We adjust. No one wants to be the dummy with unrealistic expectations. I mean, what worse judgment is there to be the person out of touch with reality? So we adjust. We acclimate. We calibrate to living without joy. We calibrate to living without expecting joy in the world to life being slightly out of focus. We get used to it, you see? Of course, we describe it as maturity or maybe growing up or learning how to survive. We might even describe it as I see things more clearly now. But love and joy and delight have gone out of focus in your life. Maybe you do see more clearly, but you've lost clarity when it comes to joy and delight and pleasure. And Because you, you, I mean, well, you want life to be rosy, don't we? And then when we experience the thorns... We go into a state of shock, or as, as disillusioned is the right word. Disillusioned. You're, you, and we think, the illusions that I had that life was supposed to be joyful, I'm losing them now. And now I'm acclimating, I'm, I'm calibrating to now the lived experience which I experience now, which is a, joy, which is a life absent of joy, without it. We, we, when, we get, when we begin to feel the thorns of life, we adjust, y'all. And some people will put up a fight to the loss of joy. We end up calling them idealists, romantics maybe. But even them, after enough betrayal and heartache, adjust, and oftentimes it's adjusting to the darkness. And we, we being creatures made for light, begin to adapt to living in the darkness. And I can't escape the, the illustration of Gollum who was once a beautiful, sweet little hobbit, but was driven down into the depths of the mountain by what? By an obsession with something that would not give him the true life he really wanted. It ended up getting him long life, if you recall. But his eyes grew large, and he learned how to survive off of fish and began living the kind of lifestyle that he was never created to live. We adjust, y'all, don't we? Um, Dylan Thomas wrote a poem about succumbing to death, really. Uh, he wrote it, uh, in, it when his father was dying. I don't know if you've heard this. You're going to recognize this poem from Independence Day, probably. Um, when his father was dying, his father was accepting death a little too easily for Dylan, and it upset him. And so he wrote this poem. Now, he's talking about death, but I, I want you to apply it to the loss of joy. Ready? Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying, how bright! Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved, it's on its, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. 
rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Come on, you know, it's great. And even if we do rage against the dying of the light, even if we do rage against, rage against the loss of joy, even if we do try to put up a fight against it, eventually all of us resign to life the way it is. Marriage, the way it is. Parenthood, the way it is. And it's unfortunate but true, y'all. Christian or not, many people are dying a slow death of a thousand lost joys and they're adjusting. They're taking it. They're saying, this is what life is now. And we, now, we all deal with this in our own way. Lewis describes the same phenomenon. Let me read it to you. The way of the disillusioned, sensible man. He says, he soon decided that the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one's young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used to, as he would say, Cry for the moon. He's describing adjusting to the darkness, isn't he? So the Bible kind of presents humanity as having this deep capacity for a real and satisfying joy. Amazing capacity for joy and connection and fulfillment, right? And satisfaction. That's no one thing in this world can fully satisfy. Which makes us all have a deep sense of restlessness. And we writhe and we toil under this restlessness as if we're trying to scratch an itch that we just can't quite reach. You guys know what I'm talking about? That I was made for something better than what I'm experiencing. And that I'm missing some essential, crucial piece to life. And if I could find that, my life would feel better, complete, whole. But we can't quite figure it out. We can't quite scratch the itch. As one author says, it's it's as if the world is a shirt that never quite settles, never quite fits right. And we get glimpses of that beauty in marriage, maybe, in the beauty of nature, in a deep friendship, but it's only a glimpse. And no matter how good the sex or how good the vacation or how good the friendship, in the morning, there's that itch again. The shirt's worked its way up, and it doesn't fit quite right, and we all respond differently to this uneasiness in our life. And one of the clearest images that the the biblical authors use to name that feeling is an image of exiles. It's going to say things like, you know, as a part of God's new creation, you're now an alien and a stranger. You used to be at home here, but now it's like you're in a foreign land. And your choice is either to settle in To adopt the thinking of the land you find yourself in or rebel against it and long for something better. Like Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith chapter describes people who act and live as strangers in the land seeking a better country, raging against the dying of the light in Thomas's words. And I think it's fair to say all of us are moving towards either adjusting to the discomfort of this world as it is or yearning for the true thing we were made for. Where are you at, friend? Are you settling for a life absent of joy, absent of God, absent of holiness, absent of the fire of the worship of God? Are you settling for something less than what you were created for? Are you just, or are you just adjusting to the darkness, becoming like Gollum, learning how to survive off of things you were never meant to survive off of? 
And one of the clearest indicators of where you're at in this struggle with joy is this one thing. The Bible's super nuanced and realistic about your ability to find joy in the world we're in, right? The Bible at the same time is going to affirm your desire for joy, your desire for connection, your desire for love, and it's going to pinpoint exactly why it eludes you. And it's going to put the epicenter of that struggle, the foundation of your joy, to one thing. There's one thing that you have to be aware of when we're talking about joy. There's one thing that will dictate your joy. What you allow in there, what you attach this to, what you set this on will determine your joy, and it's the heart. Boom, 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 boom. There it is. The Bible's going to say what you attach your heart to, what you treasure most deeply will dictate the state of your joy. Or it'll say it in words like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we have to, some work to do here. Because if, when we think of the heart, we either think of the complex muscle in our chest that pumps blood through our veins, or we think of a very emotional, romantic, infatuation type thing where Cupid does his arrow. So what does the Bible mean when it says the word heart? Well, the Bible Project guys are better at this, so roll it, JT. So good. So in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the affections, and our hearts are made for a connection, for love, and only when our hearts are set on God, connected to God, do we come fully alive. This is a claim of the Bible. It's going to maintain that you were made for him. You were made for God. You were made to love him. This is fundamentals in, in biblical knowledge. And the only way that we come fully alive is when we attach our hearts to God. That's the only way the Bible is going to say you're going to know the kind of joy you were made for. And all of the good delights in life, all, they're all kind of a shadow, echoes of God himself. Friendship, marriage, work, leisure, pleasure, food, all of it, the Bible's going to say, points us to God. All the joys we uh, recognize and enjoy, all of it points us straight to God. So let's recap. We all want joy. We all have trouble finding it. So we either adjust to not having joy or we, uh, and if we adjust, well, I'm sorry, either we adjust to not having joy or we refuse to adjust and occupied this world as aliens and strangers, living in the reality that we were made for God and only he can fully satisfy. And maybe you believe that, maybe you don't. I find it a pretty compelling explanation for the world as it is. But my friend Aaron, let me start landing the plane this way. My friend Aaron says the problem is that our hearts are like free radicals in chemistry. Anyone in chemistry? You know what a free radical is? I don't, I don't really know a ton about it. But apparently in chemistry, a free radical is an atom that is missing an electron. It's an unpaired electron, and because it's missing that, it tries to bond itself to anything it can find, wherever it can find it. And when it bonds to things it shouldn't bond to, it causes all sorts of problems, like disease and sickness and explosions. And my buddy Aaron says, this is how we live our lives. We're missing a piece. We're feeling incomplete. And in the absence and the discomfort of that piece missing, we bind our hearts to whatever we can find. We're made for connection. We're made for communion. We're made for relationship. So we connect to whatever we think will bring joy. The Bible's going to say when we ultimately attach our hearts to anything less than what we were created to attach our hearts to, when we try to find our joy ultimately on anything less than God, we get dysfunction, sickness, and explosions. And all of us could probably tell stories in our own experience when we've set our heart on something that is less than God and in the end created an absolute mess in our lives whether it was a relationship or a habit or whatever. But the point is that we set our hearts on things because we believe it will bring us joy. It's really what we want. Joy, satisfaction, delight. We just gravitate towards temporal fleeting things that will never work. Why not? Because according to the Bible, you were created to live forever. And therefore, temporal things will not do the trick. John Piper 
has this whole thing called Christian hedonism. What a weird idea. By which he's trying to say, you were made for joy. Seek it. Like, seek it with all your heart. Seek joy with all your passion and energy. But understand, the root problem in life is not that you lack joy. It's that you're looking to the wrong things for it. You see, many theologians would say the central issue with humanity is that they have delighted in the wrong things. We talked about this at the men's breakfast. Jeremiah 2, 12 says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The picture the prophet is giving is that when you forsake God, it's like forsaking one of the essentials for life, water. All right? And then you're doing all of this work. This is the image the prophet's giving you. Have anyone ever dug a well? No, because we don't do that anymore. Have you ever dug like in for flowers, right? Like two, like even like two, like what an, an insane amount of work. Can you imagine digging like 20 feet for a well, doing all of this work to get to the bottom and it's dry and dusty? He says, many of us live our lives like that. We live our lives just totally going for it, giving all of our energy to something that in the end will not satisfy fascinating book, the Bible. Uh, Isaiah would come back and give this picture for us, which we read earlier. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Huh? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The Bible basically says, you know why you don't have joy? It's because you've been delighting in weak food, not rich food. You found joy in things that don't really, you've set your heart on the wrong things. Humanity delights in things like broken cisterns and food that can't really fill us up and water that can't really quench our thirst. We've delighted in vapor and smoke when real food and real drink are on offer from God for us. Or as Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like, ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. So, if you're here today and you say, I, I do not have joy. Thanks for the, pointing that out to me. My life is actually quite absent of joy, come to think of it. Well, the place that I would start, the question that I would think you need to ask yourself is, what do you really believe gives joy? What are you looking to for life? What are you looking to, what are you resting your heart on to achieve joy? What makes life worth living, dude? Like, what really makes life worth living? What do you really delight in? We talked about this, like I said, at the men's breakfast, but according to the Bible... One of the central issues with humanity is they have delighted in the wrong things. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis, the creation story, it's phenomenal, right? God creates everything. And over everything, he says what? He declares it what? Good. He rejoices in all of creation over and over and over again. There's a refrain. He made it. He says, this is good. This is good. He takes delight in his creation. So you have two chapters of God saying, it's good. It's good. It's good. Do you know the first time someone other than God calls something good in the Bible? It's Genesis 3. And it says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that there was to be, I'm sorry, and that the tree was to be desired. Do you see those three things? Saw that it was good. 
It was a delight and to be desired. The first time humanity says, that's good, it's the wrong thing. We tracking? The Bible's so fascinating, y'all. They delighted in defining for themselves what was right and wrong. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humanity placed its joy on being in charge. They took the fruit of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. Think about it. Meditate on it, y'all. And then the history of man unfolds. And you could, you could say the entire story of the Bible is how God intends to redeem what humanity delights in. And the entire story is humanity saying, I know what makes for my joy. I know what's good. I know what's to be desired. I know what makes my heart sing. And all of the effort that God would go through through the ages to prove to humanity that it's his love and his love alone that makes your heart sing. And humanity, over and over again, choosing to adjust to life without real joy, rather than repenting and acknowledging the only real food in the universe is God himself, the bread of life, right? Here's another way to think about it. When God says, the first and greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, he's saying, I am the only one who can fulfill you, not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, not your church, not a successful ministry. Give me your love and affection. Find joy in me, and then every other joy will only be enhanced. But if you reject me and demand full and complete satisfaction from all these other things, husbands, wives, churches, ministries, all this stuff, not only will your joy shrivel up, but your husband, wife, kids will be crushed under the weight of your expectation. Or as St. Augustine sums it up, the whole thing by saying this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in you. So I don't know where you're at with joy. I don't know what your relationship with joy is like today. Maybe you floated in here in cloud nine. Maybe you barely showed up. But number one, if you've given up on joy, if you've adjusted to a joyless existence, don't leave here today without telling someone. Don't leave here today without saying, you know what, dude, I think I've adjusted to the darkness. Like when I saw that free radical thing, that's me. I'm just attaching my heart to everything I can find to give me joy. And I'm up the creek without a paddle. Don't leave here today without getting prayer for it. Just, tell, just get it out in the open. Let someone know. I think the first step for many of us today is just being real with the fact that you live a joyless existence. That might be the first step for some of us today to say, I want to start living a life full of joy. Just saying, man, I'm not there. I think that's the first step for many of us today. And number two, I think for others, you have theological obstacles to rejoicing in God. The Bible is your problem. You, like you, for, for you, God is not even in the category of things that can give joy. You know what I'm talking about? The idea of God himself as the true source of all joy is a little new to you and maybe disorienting. And you've never experienced God like that. You thought God was like the source of guilt, you know, and duty. And you've been looking at all these other places for joy, right? And if you're like, dude, that's me. I'm, I'm binding my heart to other things. I don't even see God as someone who can give joy. I think God would want to engage you today as the giver of true joy. I think he would want to have you experience himself today as the author of joy, or as the psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you see God like that? Do you see God with pleasures forevermore in his right hand and in his presence is fullness of joy? Or is he just the source of duty and guilt? So if either of those are hitting home for you today, I just want to give you an opportunity just to own it. Just to say, man, I, I don't live with joy, and I would like to begin living with joy. So let me pray for us, okay? And then we're just going to come to the table like we always do. Come on, let's pray. Close your eyes right where you're sitting. Let's pray.